0: here. We're joined um, by members of the 75th Ranger Ranger Regiment, and they welcome us back into the house and appreciate you guys allowing us to come in studio today and and talk with you guys about important topics. Um, What I'm going to do is ask each of you, though, To go around the room and then just kind of share a little bit about yourself and uh, your name and everything, and then that way people get a little accustomed or, you know, used to hearing your voice. So we'll start with you. Uh,
1: So my my name's Sergeant Ginn. Um, I came in the Army in 2011, Um, joined out of Seattle, Washington. Uh, Been in the 75th Range Regiment for my entire career.
0: I'm going to totally jack up your name every time because I think of Ginn instead
1: of Ginn. (laughs) Yeah, you're not the first person to do that. Okay, all right. <laughs> all, right, all right.
0: Well, people who listen to this know I jack up people's names anyway. So it's, it's yeah, just wanted to let you know. So
1: yeah,
2: I've been in the Army long enough I respond to both. <laughs> I hear you. I'm uh, Sergeant Ryan. I've been in the Army since 2012 and been in the same 5th Ranger Regiment my whole career as well.
3: I'm um, Sergeant Earl. I was born and raised in Utah, and I enlisted in 2017, and I've, I've been in the Range Regiment as well my whole career. Sergeant Earl, you've got a radio voice. <laughs> That's good to hear.
4: <laughs> <laughs> I'm uh, Specialist Bowers. I'm from Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, joined in uh, early 2018 and have been in Range Regiment since then.
5: i Master Sergeant Gonzalez. I joined the Army in 2004 out of Dallas, Texas, and I've been in Range Regiment the entire time. You know,
0: today, I guess it's not as unusual as it was back in the day, but it just seemed like most people, when I was here, at least stationed here, most people would um, end up, you know, staying at regiment, say, two years, three years max, Mm -hmm. and then they were out of here. You know, of course, the Abrams Charter, we all get it, but, I mean, they were doing it just because of the just the burnout back then even, you know, and then I sit here around individuals that have been in unit as long as you guys have. And it's just, it's interesting to me, you know, it's, it's a different culture mindset that's been created obviously within regiment to maintain people, you know, and to keep them here, I guess. Would you guys agree? Yeah.
1: I mean, I think the, the culture of the Ranger regiment has definitely shifted um, over the last, you know, 20, 30 years, uh, at least in my career, I've definitely seen a shift towards um, trying to retain people for longer periods of time just because it's it's easier to retain somebody than it is to, to start from scratch and uh, build somebody um, from the ground up. But I'm sure Master Sergeant Gonzalez, who's been around a lot longer, can
5: speak on that change a little bit more. I think it's the stability in one uh, duty station. So you get assigned to Ranger Battalion, you can stay there up to six, eight years. And if you have a family, that's really great for the family instead of the big army where you're moving every two years or whatnot. Yeah. So it's the stability, plus the organization, just a great organization to be in. Yeah. Well, uh,
0: you know, with you, Specialist Powers, being in Atlanta, it must have been really nice to, or it could be, I guess it all depends, right? To be nice, uh, to be close to home and everything.
4: Oh yeah, definitely. And, and I actually came down to Columbus in 2010 uh, to go to Columbus State University, so coming back to Third Bab
0: is pretty much coming back uh, coming back home. Yeah, but that, like I said, that could be a blessing or a curse, depending upon the situation. Yeah. <laughs> I, <Yeah>. I, you <laughs> know, I'm from Florida, so it's nice to know that the family's four, four and a half hours away, but it's also nice to know they're four, four and a half hours away, because then they have to the phone call before they can actually come. They don't typically show up at the door, you know? So a little different.
4: Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. and. Uh, I, th- I think it worked out well for, uh, for me. My wife and I were expecting um, our, our first kid um, uh, shortly after I finished RASP and I was in pre-Sockham. So uh, to come back here to Columbus uh, and have my parents nearby um, was kind of uh, what I was hoping for, uh, just to have uh, a little bit of support for uh, my wife and kid.
0: Well, that, that actually, we can go down that path for just a moment because I think it's interesting that not only did you have college education and so you'd already experienced this area, but you were married and with child coming into the military. And I think a lot of you know listeners who may not be familiar with it, and especially going into regiment, find themselves where they think it's more single people that are doing that. You, you chose this path and uh, at being a father already. You well know, or being a, a married person yes yeah. yes being yeah. married yeah. um yeah and that was, that
4: was there was a lot of conversations leading up to that and, and that's <laughs> probably why i joined a little <laughs> bit later
0: uh than earlier on yeah. uh, in our marriage okay we won't go down that path. And <laughs> <laughs> we'll steer away from that. So there were a lot of questions that came in around. Um, all right, I want to hear. I, I hear some about the Socom path. I hear some about you know the the medical field within regiment, but it's still uh, an area that we get many messages on. Of all right, what is a life of a medic inside regiment? What is the path that gets you know? Takes you there, but then we we were having kind of off-air discussion around the pre-sockum and the types of education. So, so maybe everybody's here stories might be a little bit different. But I am very curious about when you came in. Did each of you request an option 40? Because that's usually a typical question people ask. Well, do I have to have the option 40? And we all know you don't. But did each of you have it? No. A one.
1: So, yeah, I came in with an option 40, but it took me about six months to get it talking to my recruiter on like a weekly basis. So
2: it really depends
1: on timing, I think, for getting the option 40.
2: So I just came in with uh, an airborne contract, and I talked to a ranger recruiter once I was in airborne school, and that's how I ended up sliding over to pre-RASP and then RASP. Okay. Uh, yeah, my
3: my experience was a little bit different. I, I came in, and I previously had like two hip surgeries prior to it, and so me trying to come into the military it was a little bit more difficult they like denied me the first couple times finally got approval from my surgeon to, to come in and at that point i was like hey can i get an option 40 and they're like no i was like okay, okay. can i get a, a sf contract they're like no can i get an airborne <laughs> contract no like we don't even know if you're gonna make it through like basic training like with like uh, your wow your surgical history and so i was like okay whatever um just got a medic contract came in and uh, at my ait they they offered like a pt test and a certain amount of slots would go to airborne school and then at airborne school they uh, i went and talked to the ranger recruiter and then went to rasp after that
0: now did you get the ranger recruiters in uh, ait and stuff to come and talk with you because i know that happens often as well so did you even see those individuals at that time frame
3: uh yeah they they came and talked to us and we 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 went and asked them like hey okay, how do we get one of these contracts and they're like we don't have we don't have them here for you and then when we got to Airborne School um, and, and prior, or after RASP, I'm sorry, they, they told us that that was incorrect, that in, in AIT they actually do have slots. And there was like a, a miscommunication there with that, that person that came down and talked. Hmm.
4: Yeah. So I was fortunate enough to have an Option 40 coming in. So uh, that took a lot of stress off of the, the whole process. Yeah. What about
0: you, Sergeant Gazelle?
5: Uh, I didn't know anything about Ranger Regiment when I joined. So I had an airborne in my contract. And during basic training, I met a friend that was a medic as well who had an Option 40 contract. And throughout basic training, he told me about Ranger Regiment. Um, so after AIT and when we were in Airborne School together, there was a recruiter there that was recruiting guys, So that's when I volunteered. Yeah. Prior to going to... Well, you know, so people who are listening to this
0: get a kind of a you know heads up. I'm, you know, most people back before a podcast, didn't know anything about what to expect, what to look for, word started spreading. Now, it's like people are inundated with wanting to have an option 40 to get that guarantee. Like you said, Specialist Powers. you know, where you felt like it's so important for me to have that within our con- uh, my contract. Yet the last time we were here, about a year ago, we did a couple episodes. And the first one was focused on just getting in and into regiment and what's a day in a life of. And then the second one was about, you know, pre-rasp and rasp. Um, and at that time frame, the conversation was around you don't have to have an option 40. There are ways that you can still get into regiment if you come in just in the, the military, you know, into the army in a, a typical path, as long as you have one of the MOSs you're more than likely gonna see a regiment recruiter at your AIT installation. And if not, if you do at least get the airborne contract, you're gonna see it there. And even if none of those things happen, there's still a way that an in-service recruiter can, you know, you can find one on your installation and get into regiment. So people are wondering, you know, what is the best path? Well, what I heard here is that you all arrived here. You just arrived here in different ways.
5: Correct. And and like Sergeant Earl was talking about earlier at AIT, there was a misconception that they thought that there was only limited slots for guys to go to RAS. And two years ago, we went and talked to all the cadre out there, explained to them, like, hey, there's unlimited slots. Uh, We just need the volunteers. So we kind of went and educated them on that. And then actually Sergeant Ginn and I are going next week out to Fort Sam to do some recruiting and talk to all the companies and kind of – debunked that rumors like there's limited slots for guys so if guys don't get the option 40 they come in as a medic at AIT we try to get out there as much as we can to recruit guys in and they can volunteer there
0: so the route now just for people who may not go back and listen to that previous episode is that typically you would end up if you're coming in a regiment like option 40 you're going to go through RASP uh, pre-RASP then RASP then airborne school right isn't that the the general path now
1: yeah that's correct
0: yeah
4: yeah, and I was one of the, uh, the first RASP class uh, in order that did RASP before Airborne. Uh, so they switched our, uh, after graduating AIT instead of going straight to Airborne school, we went straight to RASP and then Airborne school after that.
1: Mm. Yeah, so the re- just for a little context there, the, the reason that the Ranger Regiment made that change uh, was because so the, the Army can only issue so many Option 40 contracts per fiscal year. Uh, and so one of the issues they were having around the time timeframe um, that I went through RASP is uh, guys would go to their recruiter looking for an airborne contract, um, and they couldn't get an airborne contract, but they could get an option 40. Um, so they would go through um, basic training, AIT, airborne school, and then they'd show up to, to pre-RASP um, and they would quit uh, because they didn't actually want to go into Ranger Regiment. They want, just wanted an airborne contract. Um, so to try and kind of prevent some of those guys from sucking up the, the option 40s and taking them away from guys that actually wanted to go into the regiment, um, they they switched up um, the ordering of, of RASP and Airborne School.
0: There's always that one. There's always that one guy that just jacks everything up for the rest of us, you know.
2: So, uh, so with what Sergeant Kim was just talking about. That's like the exact situation that actually like motivated me to come to regiment. Uh, my career, I would talked with a few people back and forth about whether or not I should try SF, if I should go Ranger. You know, you got you always got somebody on one side like telling you, hey, this is a place you should go. And, and I had a, had a hard time kind of deciding what was best for me. So, uh, like Messer and Gonzales said, I had a friend who had an option 40, and he was like, hey, go Ranger, go Ranger, go Ranger. And I was like, man, I just don't really know what I want to do. And when I showed up to airborne school with him, I had an airborne slot. He had an option 40. Uh, towards the end of airborne school, the Ranger recruiter came forward. He called all the option 40 guys over. It was like, hey, do any of you guys want to drop your option 40? And at that time, like two-thirds of the group just, like, quit on the spot. Really? And at this point, I had turned down the option to pick up a ranger contract. Um, that was one of the first things they asked in airborne school was like, hey, do any like sixty eight whiskeys, any of this mls that mls Ask if I, if they wanted a Ranger contract. And I was still unsure. But when I saw all those dudes quit, I ran up to my buddy and I was like, hey man, why did all these guys just quit? And he was like, hey, well, it's supposed to be pretty hard. It's supposed to be pretty tough. And I was like, well that's stupid. Like they haven't even tried it yet. And he's like, yeah, well, you know, the idea of something hard can sometimes deter people from even trying. I was like, well, I think I could do it. So I ran up to the recruiter after, and I was like, hey, I I want that Ranger contract. And then I picked it up, and, you know, I've been here ever since. So
0: That's a great point, because we actually touched on that the last time we were here, is uh, don't self-deselect. You know, take Go down that path. See if you're really cut out for it. Why was it that you, you got an option 40 in the first place? There must've been something that kind of drove you to, to go down that path. And so if you don't at least try, I don't know, I, I just, I, I didn't understand that either.
2: Yeah. I definitely think that if you don't try, you're always going to sell yourself a little short. And if you go and you succeed, like like my situation, it can end up being like one of the best decisions you ever made accidentally. So mm-hmm.
0: you know,
2: go try and see how it goes. You guys have all had
0: the opportunity to work, um, you know, with various different services and people within your same career type field. We um, met a, a young man at one time frame that was talking to us about what. Well, he was actually talking to one of my co-hosts who was an eighteen. He was a CSM of the 10 Special Forces Group at, um, not too long before that, and he says, "You know, hey, listen, I'm looking at, um, you know, really thinking heavily on special forces, and so." Mike said, well, why? Why do you think you want to go special forces? You know, I mean, everybody thinks they want to do something, but it's good to really understand do you have the passion and the heart and what's the drive behind it? And the guy says, because, you know, I really feel like I want to serve the best and I want to go in the medical field and all this. And Mike's like, well, then pump the brakes just a second. Because, you know, as an SF guy, you know, you're not going to get necessarily... The, um, the type of experience that you probably would, let's say in, you know, Ranger Regiment as a medic there or even in the Air Force as a PJ or, you know, so you, you got to think about that. You got to think about what's your sole purpose and drive of why you wanted to go uh, be a Green Beret. And I think it's an important conversation because you guys have a chance to work with those types of guys and has seen that across the community and each of us have a role. Uh, within the Army, but you guys play a specific role. maybe you can kind of talk about that um.
1: yeah, so I, I think there is a, a little bit of a misconception out there, uh, particularly about the uh, you know the differences between maybe an eighteen Delta or a Ranger medic. Um, what it really comes down to fundamentally is uh, the mission. Um, so, you know, I'm not a Green Beret, but, a, you know, from what I understand on a, on a 12-man ODA, the, uh, the 18 Delta, he is the medic, but he might also be the JTAC. He might also be the RTO. He might also be the sniper. So he's kind of, you know, uh, jack of all trades, master of none sort of thing. Um, whereas in the Ranger Regiment, if if you are a Ranger medic, um, you're a medic first. You know, you're always a Ranger too, but you're you're a medic first, and that's you're kind of your primary, your primary focus. Um, you're not an RTO, you're not a JTAC. Um, so you're really afforded a, a lot of opportunity to to hone those medical skills, um, as opposed to some other career fields where you know you're kind of being forced to um, learn a bunch of different skills on top of the medicine.
0: Yeah, that's exactly actually what he told him. And he was telling him that, you know, you're an operator first. I mean, you're going to be kicking the doors, and you're a member of the team, and you're very valuable in that that role. And, and of course, if somebody gets injured or hurt or whatever, you may roll into that, um, you know, that 18 Delta uh, type of role and position that you were trained to be. But all of them... To some degree, are trained at that as well, you know, and uh, but you're, you know, a member of a small team and organization. Firing that weapon is is what's most important, you know, at times. And so I think it's a fair um, response and a fair question and stuff because I think there's not a lot of information that's out there around that, and it's not like you have a chart board that you can look at and go, okay, here are the differences. So you can make an educated decision about which path you want to go into. And if there is one that exists now, then I, I, you know, great. But I've not seen anything like that that's in a chart when you're coming in to join the Army that says, here, you know. And, or, you know, you don't have recruiters that honestly, you know, given their background and everything else, may not have that type of experience and knowledge as well.
1: Yeah, and if if you don't mind, I can kind of like sum it up, sum up the differences great. Um, yeah. Yeah, in a kind of like a brief and succinct version. Um, so a ranger platoon is is essentially like a, a raid force, uh, and the ranger regiment as a whole is a scalable raid force. So it's a, a force that's designed to um, conduct you know operations from the platoon level all the way up to the regimental level. Um, When you look at SF, um, they're structured in, you know, smaller elements. uh, And their primary mission is unconventional warfare and foreign internal defense. So, you know, going into a country, training their partner force uh, and using, you know, using, um, you know, training a partner force as a way to um, wage unconventional warfare. So it's really two distinct mission sets. So I think they're, you know, you should definitely educate yourself on the differences between the two. Because um, there are guys that join either going into the Ranger Regiment or going SF, and I think they they get there and they realize that it's not what they signed up to do, uh, and they end up trying to kind of change gears at some point in their career. So, just making that educated decision before you join will will bode well regardless of the path you choose.
0: Yeah, it's a fair point. Thank you for for bringing that up. So let's go back to the beginning when you guys uh, you you just you know signed up to be medics. You go through AIT. After that, you each had different paths like we just heard, but uh, once you got into regiment, you know, you made it through RASP and you come in and, you know, you get your, your beret and stuff and you're assigned a specific unit. In this case, you guys are all, um, well, some of you were in previous units before. I think you were in first, it looks like. So each of you went down different paths. Uh, tell me about those experiences and upon your arrival, you know, kind of the day in the life when you first arrived leading up to the point where maybe you end up going off to additional um, training.
2: Uh, yeah, so <clears throat> when I arrived in the in the pre-Socum program, um, we were kind of uh, an oddity. We had 40 ranger medics in pre-Socum program, which is a lot more than we typically have at any given time. Um, so life at some times was very, very hard for us, um, and at other times it was very easy for us because they didn't always have people to watch 40 pre-Socums. Yeah. Uh, there was a very large emphasis on learning clinical medicine. That's that's really uh, the large blocks at the beginning of SOCM where people really struggle are very like clinically uh, medicine focused and like anatomy and physiology stuff. So that's that's typically where we focus um, on our efforts with the pre-SOCM program. And also, we had a very limited amount of slots to SOCM uh, when I first showed up, so it wasn't uh uncommon to be stuck for four to six months at a time but now um we can have probably saw earl or somebody talk about kind of how that shifted how the slots have opened up and how the pre-socum program has kind of changed from when i showed up to when when he's been here
0: yeah and and because i wanted then also talk to you about the um the conversation that we were happy having prior to that about you know the educational program that used to be there in place and how that's changed go ahead sergeant
3: uh, for me, uh, right after I graduated RASP, we went straight over to the, the pre-Socum program as well. Uh, there was only four of us at the time, so it was, it was very, very small, and you moved very quickly from the pre socm program over to SOCM. and during that small transitionary period, you're, you're working in the clinic and refining those skills that you kind of build on in Socum, and that, that, was, that was kind of our experience. I was only there for about three weeks.
1: Okay. Yeah, so I I went through the the pre-Socum program in uh, the summer-fall time frame of 2012. Um, So at the time, the Army's policy for tuition assistance allowed you to access your tuition assistance earlier than you can now. Um, so at the time, when I went through pre socm part of the, the POI, or the period of, period of instruction, uh, was to take classes at Columbus State University. So we took medical terminology, uh, I think anatomy and physiology, and one other class at uh, Columbus State University, kind of with the goal of prepping you to, you know, to successfully complete socum. Um, and then on top of that, you work in the clinic under the, uh, the PA and the, uh, the doctor there, um, basically working on anybody in the Special Troops Battalion, uh, pre-RASP, uh, RASP students, uh, and cert students. And then once slots opened up, um, you would head on over to, uh, to SOCOM. So
0: in the pre-SOCOM, where is that? Is it conducted here, uh, or is it, where is that conducted
2: at? Yeah, it's conducted on Fort Benning. Uh, so once somebody graduates RASP, they go into post-RASP. Uh, they spend a brief period of time there, and then they transition to pre-Sockems where they're...
0: What's that time frame typically? What
2: would you say? Is awesome?
3: uh, I went over the next day, like I was in pre-RASP or post-RASP for about yeah, a day. I would,
5: I would say it all depends on when the next Sockham class starts. So okay. guys can be anywhere from two weeks. If, if they have to go to airborne school, they'll obviously go to airborne school first, so that's three weeks long. So they can be in pre-Sockems from a month upwards up to three or four months I think the last group was here for about close to six months just because they were here during the holidays and there were any soccer courses going on at that time. So that's about the longest time they'll wait, but the shortest time could be about a month.
0: Not to take you off track here just a second, but if you're
5: waiting that long post-RASP, what are you doing? Uh, some of those guys have the opportunity to go to ranger school. Oh, if really? they ready for it, they'll send them to ranger school so they have the opportunity to get the ranger tab. Um, if not, I'm sorry, Brian can expand more what kind of what those guys are
2: doing. <laughs> so, so I think the Ranger School topic is a, is a pretty interesting one to bring up because um, we've had a lot of discussions about what actually is the most effective means of determining a post-RASP medic's success in SOCCM. And I think actually the guys, a lot of guys have this debate about, you know, we'll offer, hey, do any of you guys want to go to Ranger School? And some think, no, I want to go to SOCCM, I want to get to my battalion. But I think the dudes who have gone to ranger school actually are some of the most proficient at Sockham. Co-
5: correct. They have a higher success rate at Sockham because they feel like they've been well invested. They had that leadership school under their belt. So they you know, they take that to heart, and they've really they're, had the determination and drive to study and do what it takes to get through Sockham.
0: Yeah, that makes sense to me. Or having spent, you know, the other way I guess you could look at it is having spent maybe a year or two within regiment before going to SOCOM, if you could just work in some medic capacity, you know, within regiment that, you know, obviously SOCOM is a major component of it. But I could see the benefit either way because then you're vested, like you said, you want to do it. It's something that you want to achieve. So typically, these guys going through um, Ranger School are like PFCs and stuff. Then, yeah, Yeah, which is very unorthodox for regiment. At least, again, as I remember, you had to be E4 or E5 before going.
2: So we're sending the line battalions send guys to Ranger School as as quickly as they can once they determine they have a strong enough PT score. uh, They create kind of an order merit list you know, based on whatever guys need to go. Mm -hmm. Um, I will say there's some degree the amount of time you've been there will kind of push dudes more to the top, but at the same time, PT is PT. And if you have guys who are doing well at PT, they're always going to be preferred because that's a really good predictor of their success at Ranger school. Um, but also to the, the pre-soccering program, like we were saying uh, about the Ranger school piece, um, Currently, we're not doing the the CSU program like we used to, but we've developed uh, a Khan Academy course that's very similar to what guys did at CSU. Um, they can do it generally at their own pace. Uh, they do it online. We have a couple of NCOs who manage them day to day. There's a large focus on clinical medicine. We integrate them back into the RAS program, so they see kind of behind the scenes of the RAS. They'll do some coverages with them. Um, They'll get hands-on exposure treating, like, heat casualties, anaphylaxis casualties. Sometimes we'll pair them out on uh, jump coverages as well. They mm. primarily work as drivers, but, you know, they still get to see more of day-to-day ranger operations and how a ranger medic functions um, once they're post-sock So they do a lot of integration with us. And uh, while they're out on the ranges, we try to, you know, teach them Uh how to be successful in SAKM. How to be successful once they become a medic after SOCM, uh Leadership stuff. Um, really, that time out on the range is when the medics do a lot of mentoring with the pre-SAKMs, and it's since it's mostly one pre-socum with another medic, it's really on an almost like individual level instead of you know, sitting in a classroom with a group. So I think there's a lot of value out of having the pre-socums come and really see day-to-day life once you're in regimen.
0: I'm curious, then, based on that, are you seeing that the success rate uh, tends to go up a little bit more because of that, or, or is it still about the same, equal?
2: So what I will say is when I was in SOCUM, we had, I think, 20 medics across all the periods of instruction at Socom. And how many do we have now over at, at Socom? I
5: think we have close to 80 medics at the Socom Schoolhouse right Holy now.
2: Holy cow! Yeah, there. It seems like more. All the efforts that have been made by our med and STD and their changes, we're not only getting more medics into the Ranger system, but they're they're staying and they're not washing out of the Socom pipeline and we're really creating like a deep well of Ranger medicine, essentially.
0: I can tell you that, I mean, outside of just infantry, I mean, med, uh, you know, the, uh, the uh, medic side of things within a regiment is probably a close second of as far as questions that we get and everything else. And so it just shows that there's a, there's a he- heavy pipeline now, and it's gonna be a lot more competitive for individuals than to get into that pipeline, because if there are only so many slots within regiment, and these guys are staying the in is there. Yeah, it's going to be a little bit more challenging. Uh, but that that means that obviously things are are being performed very well. You're getting the types of individuals that you want. You know, people who have a passion and desire, want to stay, want to contribute back. You know, look at you guys and how long you guys have been in already inside, you know, regiment. And again, I was mentioning in the very beginning how that was kind of unheard of back in the day. You know, it was shorter durations of individuals coming, uh, to regiment. So a lot, a lot of big change for sure.
2: So All good things.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, let's then go into SOCOM because I, I, I'm, you know, the timeline of SOCOM is how long?
1: It's about, I think 10 months, 10 months, if I'm not, not mistaken. Okay. And that's taught at Bragg or down in Florida? Um, or I can't Bragg. remember. Okay. Yeah, so that's it's Fort Bragg. It's actually it's a, a school that's run by the JFK Special Warfare Center and School, so it's part of the Q course um, for 18 Deltas. Yeah,
5: so it's this Joint Special Operations Training Center, Medicals Training Center.
0: Okay, so. and throughout that course, are there different phases, and can you kind of share maybe what that is and kind of the importance of why they're broken up that way?
3: Well, you guys
2: who recently went through one, I think.
3: Yeah. <laughs> Um, so the way that they break it up, it's usually about four to five weeks per section that you're going through. And it just slowly builds on, on each portion until finally there's like a, a cumulative event where you go and you go on trauma rotations at the end. And it starts with like an EMT phase and you go through um, like the building blocks of, of clinical medicine and medical terminology and AMP. And then as you build that and you start moving into more specifically trauma medicine. And then once you get like more like your feet under you with trauma medicine, you start going into like mass casualty situations, prolonged field care. And then, and like I said, at the end, you'll go to one of these sites around the country where there is a a heavy, heavy trauma presence. And you'll go for about 30 days and rotate through uh, many different departments of the hospital working and actually treating patients and getting that experience. So that once you get back to the unit, like once you get back to regiment, it's not your first time when you see a casualty, like it's your pretty much well, well well-versed in at least the civilian side of, of treating casualties.
0: When you're finishing this thing up, is it, is it, um, is there like a test where you basically have to apply the skills, uh, and the knowledge that you've learned and stuff and actually, you know, demonstrate that you've understood it?
3: Is that kind of the end? Yes. So, uh, (laughs) one of the more, one of the more stressful parts about SOCOM is you have a test probably like two times a week. And you have to maintain over a certain... I, I can't remember what the, the GPA was, but you have to... 80%. 80%, yeah. You have to maintain over an 80% overall, or else you're, you're not, you're not going to make it. And so you're just constantly... It's, it's not like a, you build, 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 and then take a test. It's like you're taking multiple tests a week, and then per section, there's like a large cumulative test that goes over everything over that section. And then as you start progressing more, then those end tests then cover like multiple sections. And then at the end, you'll do... Um, like an, an advanced tactical uh, paramedic test that kind of goes over a lot of it. But for the most part, you'll take like your large test just at the end of each section. And then after you come back from your trauma rotations, then you take the, um, the National Paramedic Registry exam. This is like intense then. It's it's a little stressful.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, so for somebody who's listening to it that um, has never heard this before, they may be looking at it and going, okay, well, that sounds a lot more challenging than what I actually thought it might be. You know? I mean, I think people come in thinking, oh, yeah, I want to be a medic. but And then they say, oh, I want to go to Ranger Regiment. But you're sharing with them what that path is like. You know, it's pretty intense. Yeah.
5: I'm sorry. They changed the curriculum from when I went through. So now, when guys graduate Salkom, they can transfer a lot of college or a lot of credits for college uh, credits, right? To where you can get like his associates or close up bachelors. So yeah.
2: I think. Um when I took my, so when you, all your military school would get like a joint service transcript yep. and I took that and I transitioned that to a civilian university and I think I ended up coming away with like 90 credit hours from all the stuff I'd done. That was a little post-Socom, I had some other stuff I'd done as well, but I had a decent amount of credit hours. Yeah, 120 to get a bachelor's degree, just yeah. to kind
0: of put it in perspective, so yeah.
2: So so that was pretty beneficial for me um, and I think one thing that kind of Sergeant Arnold's talking about is... All the building blocks in Stockholm, you know, you're doing your EMT block, then your A&P, and then your clinical fundamentals. Um, there's a strong emphasis in your clinical medicine, and your, the all the building blocks pre-trauma medicine. And then you hit a point, once you hit trauma one, trauma two, trauma three, you switch to more of, like, the tactical side, like the T-Tri-C focus stuff, um, so... A lot, of, a lot of guys want to jump straight into all the, the tactically focused medicine uh, once they get involved with Ranger Medicine or if they're doing the, maybe the a- 18 Delta Pipeline. But all that, uh, all those building blocks really create a strong foundation for all the trauma-focused stuff, uh, which is why in the pre-Socom program, that's why we focus a lot on, on the clinical fundamentals because you know, when you're back after Sockom... 90% of what you're doing is strong clinical medicine. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, if you deploy, you do something forward, there's still clinical fundamentals there. But then, obviously, operationally, you do the tactical stuff. But that's why we, we really focus on the, the clinical side first. Um, but yeah, the, the trauma rotations are a pretty good time. Um, you you kind of go all over the place. I did mine in, in Flint, Michigan. And Wait, these are not military installations then. Yeah. You no, no. just popped yeah. into a
0: hospital situation. ER? Is it, or? So
2: what you do is you'll rotate between doing EMS, like on an ambulance rig. Okay. Or in a hospital. But where I went, and I think this is similar in some other locations, um, the, we rode with the Flint Sheriff's Department, who are also, they double as paramedics. So I was out, uh, had to wear like body armor with them, We're responding to EMS calls and police calls. Like, I cannot do anything from the law enforcement side. I just have to sit and ride along and, and be supportive, and if something happens, you know, like, then we can we can use our hands. But um, we're, we are there for a medical purpose, mm. but there's still risk involved. Uh, and then you'll go to the hospital, and then you rotate through all the departments. Um, so whatever the hospital's got there, you're rotating through one section, um, whether or not they're doing it in one week uh, blocks, two week blocks, you'll rotate like day to day through, you kind of have a list of procedures that are the main focus. But you get, you get in pretty well with the hospital staff and they're pr- generally pretty familiar with the tasks you want to complete. And as long as you come in, you show your proficiency and you know to some degree, uh, you got to have a personality to work with them. and. Uh, You know they get to like you they're gonna start feeding you what you need to to see and and uh, the physicians that we generally work with are excellent and they're really really good at not only uh, teaching but really guiding us to opportunities that we wouldn't necessarily notice ourselves.
0: So. so are you guys rotating then, not just, if I look at departments, you're rotating, let's say, it could be ER, could be med-surg, OB- could be ortho, could be OBGYN, really? Okay, I, see, again, I would never have thought of that. So you're literally going through every single department within that hospital. Yeah. That, that's really cool. You're getting a well-rounded it almost sounds like coming out of SOCOM and getting this type of exposure, it's well above an EMT, you know, which is more of what EMS and stuff, which is what most people look at when they think of medic and you're closer to a physician assistant or a PA.
1: Yeah, that's correct. Um, so our, we are, uh, a majority of us are nationally registered EMTs. Uh, additionally, some of us are also Georgia, uh, paramedics as well. Um, but our advanced tactical paramedic license, which is the, the license that you get when you graduate SOCOM, the scope of practice for that license is actually a little bit closer to like a, a surgical PA uh, or like a, some sort of like a, you know, like a, a resident. I would say um, in the in the surgery field, you know, we're doing procedures like intubating, um, we're doing chest tubes, um, we're doing crikes, we're doing stuff that is really, you know, they're procedures that only you know residents um, or attending physicians are doing. So it's a pretty unique opportunity to get to do some pretty advanced procedures.
0: How, how, when you're in that type of situation at the hospital and stuff, are they like concerned about what it is that you're capable of doing? I mean, how does that? I mean, they, like again, you had to talk about building that rapport.
1: Yeah, like uh, Sergeant Ryan said, it's really heavily personality based. So if if you so these hospitals have a, a pretty de- well developed relationship um, with students coming through this medical training program, so they they know what our scope of practice is, they know what we're capable of. Um, but if you come in and you're you're confident and you can you can speak. Uh, well, especially when it comes to like medical terminology, um, then you're going to kind of earn that trust. And it does take a little bit of time to earn that trust, which is one of the reasons that you're there for 30 days. Um, you want to kind of become a familiar face. Uh, and then once they trust you, you're really competing with those first, second, and third year residents um, for a lot of the procedures. So they'll be like, hey, we need. We have a guy in, in trauma bay too who needs a chest tube. You're going to be competing against doctors to, to get those procedures. So um, but you're you, a ranger, so you have no problem like pushing your way through, right? Yeah, yeah. Usually uh, <laughs> a lot of us are pretty A-taped, so usually it's not an issue for us trying to jump in on those procedures. Um, but, yeah, you have to show that you're, you're confident and you're competent. Um, and then once you earn that trust, it kind of opens up a lot of doors there at the hospital to do all sorts of procedures. I mean, I scrubbed in on uh, burn patients. I was out there shaving skin grafts and uh, stapling skin grafts onto burn patients, uh, going into the operating room and, uh, you know, walking in with uh, elective surgical procedures and working with the anesthesiologist to do the intubations for these elective surgical procedures. Um, And like Sergeant Ryan said, you have a a checklist of procedures that you have to do, um, but then there's also other procedures on that checklist that that they want you to do if they're available, which, you know, it's... you can't predict what's going to happen in the hospital, but yeah, you'll do everything from, uh, assisting with childbirth, um, you know, doing skin grafts, dropping chest tubes, innovating patients, um, really, really anything that you can think of that happens in a hospital.
0: So you're working that heavily then with like nurse and ethicists and, and ethicists? really
2: yeah. And, um, like, uh, Sergeant Gid said, it's all the little things really matter. And how, how the physicians, not only, like, how you articulate yourself is mm-hmm. important, but when you come in and the staff sees you give an IV well, or, you know, you go Which in. Which is not easy when you're trying to find a rolling, um, it, you know, vein. And it really, some of the IV stuff can really depend on the patient, because I will say we're we're very used to a certain type of patient population and, and training, and um, when you transition to other places, you're dealing with different different types of patient populations. It can be difficult um, getting IVs. and. Uh, how you interact with patients, um, mm. basically every every little thing you do, you know, they're not going to let you just jump in and just give somebody a chest tube. Yeah. They're going to watch how you interact with the nursing staff, with the patients, how you talk to physicians. Every every little detail of what you do is is really important, and that's all what builds into rapport. And to some degree, the people who came before you can dictate. Um, mm. How a physician will interact with you. If you've had a solid group of SOCOM students come through, they're going to be like, yeah, you know, there's this standard we've seen and, and we know and we expect you to perform at this level. Or if you've had bad, bad students come through, they're, they're not going to trust you as much. So you really kind of have to understand not only your skill, but the skill of the people who came before you. And you, get, you can kind of talk to the staff and say, like, oh, well, how are the students who've come before me? What were some of the issues they had? How can I be more successful? You know, you're, you're one group of students in a line of students they've seen. And when you go in, you kind of understand the lay of the land. You get their opinion. You get a lot of details on how you can be successful. So that that ability to interact with people is very important and can feed you a ton of information for success. I mean,
0: you think about you guys are going, let's say, from a basic training in AIT mode directly into you know a RASP. And you are now in a very different mindset and everything. And then you're having to turn that off. And maybe you'd get an opportunity within Sakkum to do some of that to kind of decompress a little bit and you know step away from the daily grind and regimen and and just in the army kind of thing and then get a and because when you arrive at the hospital, this is all about you know your success depends upon building relationships, building rapport, knowing your stuff, you know demonstrating that. But but that communication piece, like you mentioned, it sounds like, you know, to build that rapport and relationship is going to be so key. They see you this hard charger, you know, A-type, you know, there are pros to that and then there are cons. And and I could definitely see that.
1: Yeah, I mean, they they definitely don't select us based off of our uh, social skills. So it can definitely be a a struggle (laughs) for some of us uh, in, in this community. So it's definitely something we have to work on. Um, and the, the SOCOM course is a little bit more relaxed when it comes to, you know, rank and uniforms and stuff like that. And, you know, part of the intent with that is to put people into a relaxed environment where they can learn and they can communicate and they're not completely um, consumed with, you know, the military hierarchy, which can definitely hinder some of that absorption of knowledge and training. Um, but then again, once, once you finish your medical training, you show up to your ranger battalion, you've got to shift Shift gears back into the military mindset. I was just writing that
0: down to to get on there because yeah, we may go into that deeper because that's
1: yeah. Well, I, you go from a trauma center rotation where you're working with civilians, and then you uh, you PCS to your ranger battalion. You show up to your platoon, um, and it could not be
2: more different. <laughs> yeah, that's also a, a big part of like you know just learning to be a professional within really I'd say any organization. There's a time to be relaxed, and there's a time to, yeah. to read the signs and button yourself up and look professional. And being, it's a larger transition when you go from you know ten months of SAKEM laid back schooling to now I'm back in Ranger Regiment where life is more of a grind. Uh, so it's it's kind of a big swing there, but that's one thing people need to recognize is important of being in any professional workplace is the defi- like the time where you need to be relaxed and the time where you need to be uh, in duties and professional. And we see, you know, we see that problem with not just new privates in the Army. You know, there there are people all across the scope that have trouble uh, seeing the difference between those two times. Um, It's not necessarily very apparent. Like, I don't sit people down and necessarily tell them, like, hey, this is something you need to learn. But I kind of got to read between the lines and, and notice some of the people who are the most professional in any organization are the people who can... Kinda, you know, let their hair down so to speak and, and be relaxed, but then at the same time button up and, and you know, get in front of a group and be professional and give a briefing. So um that's that's one thing people need to know. it's not necessarily us being rude or you know uh range regiment isn't always like uptight. We're just a lot of guys wanna have a professional appearance all the time, but then you go out on the range and you're hanging out, you know, guys are gonna act like they're your closest friend and be very laid back out there. So Yeah.
0: Well, and I think that's one of the things that I've noticed, obviously, in my time in coming back and working with you guys is that it's a very, it looks very different. I mean, again, back in the 90s, you know, shaved head, high-end tight, every, you know, shaving two or three times with a razor and everything else. And so you, you felt tight and wound up, you know, and, and I think today it's a little bit more relaxed environment for sure.
1: Yeah, I think the culture has definitely changed a little bit and Master Sergeant Gonzalez can probably speak more on that cuz he came in he came in back in the days of <laughs> of high end tights so I'm sure he can he can recollect but I think uh um uh, we've tried to I, the organization has has changed a little bit when it comes to you know grooming standards and appearance over the years um and the GWAT has obviously had a a strong influence on that but the the influence has also come from uh interacting with other special operations units Uh, And I think that actually the haircut change came from the former RSM uh, command sergeant major, Birch. Um, But, yeah, there's been some changes in the culture over the Um, years.
5: There has. And the little things, like you say, the haircuts, you know, people might think it's not that big of a deal, but it is. I mean, I did come in. We were wearing high and tight, starching our uniforms, still shining boots. Yep. So, I mean, it's a big different change. He was huge.
0: I mean, I remember, you know, just me coming over from, at that time frame, I had a recruiting stand in between, but I came from 11th ACR, and back then we were guarding the border, East-West German border, and and consider ourselves a very strack unit, and, you know, the same type of thing, And, and I arrive here, and it was like deja vu. You know, guys, the same way—spit shine boots, and you know the the starch uniform, the, everything. The way you, you knew automatically, anywhere, even in civilian clothes, out in Columbus, Georgia, who was a ranger? It just by the way you look, you walk, you carried yourself. It was very, very different. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, you can, you can still tell now. It's usually yeah, some sort of flannel and like a snapback or some, some black converse. <laughs> Same thing, different generation. <laughs>
0: uh, so attrition rate. Where is it that most people end up kind of tripping up and stuff you know, throughout Sockham? And what is the attrition rate through the whole thing?
5: So with Sockham right now, we have about a 70% pass rate. And what's getting most of the guys? We were just there last week talking to some of the guys. What's getting them is like short rounds, uh, the clinical medical uh, fundamentals of ClinMed, med, uh, A and P, neuro, uh, even math, the medical math. So some of these guys probably been out of high school for a little bit, and just some basic math problems. They just have to refresh their memory on how to do those. Mm. Uh, I think I think when we
3: went through, it was um, it was very similar. It was like it was like 33 percent or something like that went straight through. And then 70% graduated with a recycle somewhere along the way because you can each of these phases, you can you can recycle that that one phase, and um, how the, many times? Uh, it kind of depends on on I guess the the time that it happens at, but
5: yeah, it depends which phase they failed and which phase they recycled, and it also depends on the guy's personality, how he is. You know, is he motivated? Is he determined, or is he just kind of shaming out or yeah. whatnot? So that can go a long way as well. Every time you fail, it's not like a. I just
3: like, okay, this is, this is a reset. You have to go to like a board. You have to present your case to, to hire leadership and be like, this is why I, I want to be here. This is why I deserve to be here. And, um, yeah, I just, I just think like the whole, the whole, the whole thing, uh, they like do a really good job of selecting who actually wants to be there and who needs to, to graduate, to go and, and treat casualties.
0: I could see it being a situation where, you know, you get a lot more relaxed than what you have been in the past and maybe, you know drift a little,
2: in uh, yeah. focus. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. I'll <laughs> say, um, because it is relaxed up there, you're definitely, I think the frizzy is like you treat more like a man. You got a little more freedom. And, um, back when I was in Sockham, it was guys who were going out at night and doing dumb stuff. It was like alcohol incense, uh, guys underage drinking, doing, doing stupid stuff that was taking guys down. And, um, I think a, a lot of people forget what's, you know, down the road, all that benefit they have, and they just go out one night, they do something stupid, make a bad decision, and then it kind of like ends their ranger career,
0: yeah essentially. Um, we all make dumb decisions, but it's oh, just yeah. all based on the scale of what that decision is, you know. Some make small, big, de- uh, bad decisions. Some make really bad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is power. You, you were going to chime in.
4: Yeah. I was just going to say, um, I don't think there's one day in Sockham that was – Um, extraordinarily hard or one day in particular that I was just dreading uh, to arrive, but it was more of a a constant grind. Mm -hmm. It was the the guys that weren't dialed in all the time and um, understanding that, okay, every test that I take, there's another one four or five days later the following week. um, Those guys that kind of let it slip a little bit um, after exams, those are the guys that usually kind of fell into a, um, I guess, a perpetual hole they, 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 that they couldn't climb out of. Um, it, and I don't think Sockham is it necessarily a, a one-test um, pass or fail, but it's more of a, uh, like a constant grind. It's a, it's a nine, ten month of constantly being evaluated, um, and if you're not ready uh, to, to spend nine months of taking tests and studying every day, then you're probably going to end up uh, this is part of the attrition rate. Yeah. 33.
0: I mean, 30, 33% is pretty high.
3: Yeah. For, for us, like, the, the, from an academic standpoint, like, the largest uh, point where we lost the majority of our class was trauma two, And that's where you shift really from more books and, and, like, the academic side into more of a tactical hands-on. Like, now you're putting everything that you've learned in, into actual treatments, into actual trauma lanes. And some people just have, they're really, really good with books, really good with tests, but then you put them with hands-on and a time limit, and they have to complete this task and all of these things in a certain order to treat this casual and get them to like an evacuation point or a, a surgical point. And, and they just kind of fall apart under, under that stress of trying to do things hands-on under time limit. It's an interesting
0: point, though, because the learning skills of individuals are very different, right? There are, very, there are people that are really good hands-on. I mean, if you teach them and show them one time, they can pick it up rather quickly and, and maybe even in a very extensive learning, you know, and pick it up quickly. And then there are other people um, who are really good, like you said, at books, but then they can't apply the skill. And it's it's a different learning aspect of it that is probably the reason why you've got 30% is because some people just can't, you know, they fail at one end of the spectrum or the other,
5: you know. I mean, it goes both ways, too, because I'm I'm a horrible book learner. I I skated by doing an academic book part, but when it came to the hands-on stuff, I excel because I'm just more of a hands-on visual learner. Yeah, I would say our class, um, I guess they were
4: a little um, challenged on the uh, the, 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 <laughs> the mental aspect because uh, we lost probably 33% um, just in between the first three blocks.
0: Um, wow. Yeah. Well, I mean, it sounds like they pivot there, you know, based on the instructor's pivot based on the class, how people are learning and maybe adjusting how they're doing things, or is it less forgiving?
1: Um, I- I actually do think that they do—they do a really good job of of trying to teach people with different types of uh, learning abilities and mm-hmm. ways that they learn. Um, the course is extremely professional. They've been doing it and you know, kind of making little tweaks and modifications for for decades now. Um, but yeah, it's an extremely professional course, uh, extremely well-run course. Uh, and they they give you you know every opportunity to be teach you know coached and mentored uh, before they determine that you know hey you're not you're not cut out for this job.
3: Uh, I think we we spent a lot of time talking about like how hard it is, but I think a lot of people will focus only on like wow that sounds like really unattainable. But there's also a side of there's like a very large benefit to going through. Uh, and the way that it works in, in regiment, and especially as like a medic, is you've you've never made it. Like you've never like gotten to a point where you're like, cool, I'm set, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be good. Like you're continually learning, you're continually going to courses, trying to better yourself, trying to be better at your craft, or or better, like from a, a tactical standpoint, you're constantly trying to build up uh, yourself as an asset in the unit. Um, and that doesn't mean that it's just life is hard all the time. It's you work hard to to be good at what you do, and and it's it's not it's not something that's, I think it, it gets painted sometimes of like, wow, this, this, this life is just, it's really difficult. It's not for me. Um, and it is difficult, but it's also like very, very rewarding. And, uh, I think there's, there's a large benefits, especially in your career too, as going through this course and going through the, the regiment side of things. So Sockum, that, and that's a great point. I want to take in, uh, you guys are making really life
0: valuable, um, comments here and stuff that are very important in anything that you do. Right. But I, I want to take us like once you arrive back at regiment. That's a that's a great point I think that you are making is that also SAKM um, is just one aspect of the training that you're going to go through. It is a long period of training, but when you come back, you want to you want to remain proficient in your craft, and so you're going to go to other types of schools and stuff. So.
1: Yeah, I'm sure all of us want to chime in on that one. Cause So I, I think uh, what happens after Socom is really where the Ranger Regiment kind of stands out in the field of medicine. So um, every training cycle, which is you know roughly a year, uh, you go through what's called a, a two-week Ranger medic assessment and validation, and it's basically like a little two two-week, uh, two-week mini Socom where your boss and your supervisor uh, they are evaluating you and training you to make sure that you're ready to go for the upcoming deployment. Uh, uh, and if you do not if you do not meet the standard, you either won't deploy, or you could potentially get released for standards, which um, is essentially getting fired from the ranger regiment. Um, so it's it's I don't want to say it's cutthroat because that makes it sound like you know we don't like each other, but it's really about holding each other to the standard. Um, we pride ourselves on being an organization that, regardless of rank or MOS, everybody's held to the
2: same standard, and everybody is ready to roll. Yeah. So one thing I wanted to say is. Um, I think of RASP is like a selection. Do you, hey, do we think you have what it takes to become a ranger? Mm-hmm. You're not a ranger once you graduate at RASP. Like yes, you wear a tanbraid, but it takes years of development to like really hone those skills and prove that you hold stock in the organization. Um, and just like with SACOM, it's almost like hey, you have now earned. Or you've now essentially proven that you have the skills to potentially be a full fred, uh, full-fledged ranger medic. You don't step into ranger regiment being like a ready-to-deploy ranger medic. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where the senior medics really make their money is they take these sock'em grads and they they now have gone through RASP, which is a very physically and mentally strenuous course, to SOCM, which is very educationally focused and like, yeah, you've done all these tactical trauma skills and now you're going to essentially like take all those things and you're going to cram it all together and you're going to develop that rapport with your ranger platoon, to learn how to do ranger type operations, learn how to function as a medic within those operations, and just like with everything else some guys flourish and some people do not and some take a lot of uh, leadership and mentorship to really like grow there's a full spectrum of success within uh post-socum life and anything can take you down you could be a stellar trauma medic and then go to your platoon and just not mesh um but that's where, like I said, the, the Ranger Company senior medics like really make their money. Is you take these guys who have learned all these things, and you basically apply them to the niche that is Ranger uh, Ranger medicine, and um, that that can seem like a very difficult task. You know, you have that focus that shifts from a relaxed environment to now we're gonna we're gonna tighten up on you, and we're gonna make sure you mind your p's and q's. You have good customs and courtesies, military bearing. You understand how a Ranger platoon. Operates, and then what is your role within that operational focus? <clears throat> and then, with what Sargent said, we we take I want to say a pretty significant amount of pride in how we assess our medics. Um, you you need to be pretty good at what you do to be a fully mission qualified Ranger medic, and you're going to run multiple iterations with different senior medics. All of them are going to take a look at you. They're going to grade you, and at the end. It's going to culminate with an oral board, and Master and Gonzalez is one of the guys who's going to be at that board, and they're all going to sit down, and they're going to say, like, you know, where is this guy? Is he fully mission qualified, basic mission qualified, or non-mission qualified? And uh, it can seem like, like a pretty daunting task, but um, if, you, if you have faith in how you've been trained and, and you execute your tasks properly and you go with confidence... You will generally be successful. I will say, I can't say with 100% fact that's going to happen, but, um, you know, just like how the Sockham Schoolhouse has been doing this for generations, the Ranger Regiment has been slow, like, we've been churning in our own way and really, like, sharpening the knife that is our craft. And we have a, a pretty good uh, system for how we train and develop Ranger Medics.
0: That's what I was just getting ready to ask, is about the evolution.
5: Yeah, yeah you know? and with the Ranger Medic assessment validation, so every medic does that once a year. And, and like Sir Ryan was saying, we assess them at the end of the World Board. We provide them feedback on how well they did and what they lacked on. And we make an assessment, like, is, did this guy just get out of soccer or has he been here for three years? And we kind of gauge where he should be at. So a guy that just got there, yeah, he may struggle a little bit, but we know he has room for improvement. And then we assess the guys that this is like his third go. And he's still struggling, so we have to look at his, you know, from organizations, like is he worth keeping or, you know, is there something else going on? What do we need to work with him on to improve his skills? Hmm. What has been, like, for
0: you the – were you going to say something
2: to uh, All I was going to say was, again, it seems like it can be, like, a very stressful, like, task, but we, uh, we, we demand a level of proficiency. And I think that's one thing guys should really look forward to is – you know, when you're successful here, you're successful with a very, like, elite group of medics, mm-hmm. and that's something that they should take pride in. Uh, like Sergeant said, uh, us checking on each other, make sure everyone's doing the right thing all the time, and we're, we're not going to put, we're not going to let somebody not get assessed and deployed. Like, if you're deploying, you're getting assessed, and that's something that everyone else in the regiment can take comfort on, is that the medic that's standing next to him is held to a very stringent standard, and when... That guy standing next to him they can have faith and and be confident that they can do their job properly because you have somebody there who's been put through a pretty rigorous process, and you know he's going to perform in a tough situation.
5: We we also try to have fun with too with assessment. So we uh, at the end, (laughs) the medical leadership will also rank all the medics from like who's the top performer down to the bottom performer and share it through all the guys. It's a little friendly competition, but still it's. It's making those guys strive to be the best, so they kind of compete with each other, and they just want to push hard to be that top three or whatever it is.
0: What have you seen as far as the evolution? You know, I want to really kind of, you know, you've seen it go from medics coming in to then coming into Sockham, and having that now as a, you know, a course that they have to go through. Were you pre pre You know, before that was even a requirement, and. So industry. when I got to
5: the line yeah. battalion, there was a Ranger Med assessment validation, but it was kind of like hip pocket. It wasn't really yeah. intense as it is now, and we just, we did a combat trauma management training for a week long, and it was basically like check-off-the-block training. So we, we brought back, the we tried to combine RMAB with the CTM and made it more like a legit assessment validation to really assess guys, not, not only just assess them, but also train them, and then at the same time provide them the feedback to where they're at and how we see them because when i was growing up i really didn't get much feedback i was like hey you did a good job or you suck it was just kind of like you don't know how you did you just like i still have a job so i must have did something right <laughs> <laughs> not even a go no go huh? yeah it was, yeah, it was really like a no no go it was just like, you know, like I, would, I would like the feedback that we get the guys now when i was growing up
0: yeah deployment I mean, again, I think you guys hit on, um, you know, how much you, you put an emphasis on this to get into that type of situation. Um, when you guys do deploy, is it, um, what, how, what's the, like, uh, if you could share, the, like, the ratio of medic to troop, you know, typically that you guys are helping support?
1: Um, so generally, uh, as a platoon medic, you're you're the primary medic for you know roughly thirty to forty rangers, depending on you know what you're doing and whether or not you have attachments and whatnot. Um, but additionally, you'll you'll gen- your company senior medic, who's essentially your your first line supervisor, they are usually going out uh, on missions with you as well. Um, so it is you know maybe you know two to three medics for thirty to forty guys, which is not ideal, uh, especially when uh, you know casualties start racking up, but um, but one of the focuses of the Ranger Regiment is not just training our medics uh, with medicine, but it's training everybody in the unit on medicine. So even though our, our medic to Ranger ratio is pretty low, um, everybody in the platoon is trained to a really solid baseline foundation of, uh, of what we called Ranger First Responder, but it's essentially, you know, um, point of injury care for casualties, but additionally, we have uh, non-medics who go through the Advanced Ranger First Responder program, which is a two-week program where we actually train uh, infantrymen, you know, mortarmen, uh, non-medical guys, how to do pretty much everything that we do uh, in a in a, a little abbreviated course, uh, and that's paid huge dividends um, on real casualties that have happened uh, in the last few years. Um, so it's not just about the medics, but it's it's about the entire unit as a whole. For From the top down, um, putting a priority and an emphasis on medicine.
0: You took me right down the path I wanted to go because that's exactly what I wanted to hear. Is that you know, people all involved throughout this. I mean, when you when you you guys are limited to the number of people that are assigned to a platoon, you have to do the train the trainer. You've got to have the ability to expose that. It's not a hey, I know everything. I'm your guy. It's you know I really want this knowledge shared so we can all be successful and come out of the battlefield and so it's it's really critical and you guys are the ones leading those those training and kind of uh, providing that course.
1: Yeah, so I mean uh, one of the. One of the fundamentals of ranger medicine that's often overlooked when people uh, initially join is it's not just about you, uh, it's about your ability to convey your knowledge and teach your knowledge to, to other people. That's almost just as important as your own individual skills. Um, so as a platoon medic, you're constantly doing training with your platoon. Um, you're doing what's called you know ranger first responder training, which is usually a three-day course that you run everybody through uh, at least once a training cycle. But then the advanced ranger first responder program, that's put on by each individual ranger battalion and the instructors for that program are all of the platoon medics uh, and company senior medics in the battalion. What's the day in the life of? Just a uh, platoon medic? Yeah. Um,
0: what can somebody expect? You arrive, and, and maybe even special, uh, Specialist Bowers can yeah, yeah. be more newer to this whole thing. You, know, you arrive in the door, and you're, you're brand new. What can I expect?
4: Yeah, um, I guess it depends on uh, where you're assigned. I'm currently assigned to HHC, but I have had the opportunity to work with uh, Alpha Company at Third Battalion on uh, a few of their training missions. Um, so, yeah, it, it kind of depends on um, the professionalism that you display while you're there. Um, if leaders uh, respect uh, respect you or not, straight out the gate is going to come. Uh, it's going to have a large part as to. You know what you're going to be willing to say, what uh, or allowed to say, and how much you can um, uh, train the guys. I had the opportunity on a, um, on my second uh, training mission to do an abbreviated RFR course with uh, some of the newer um, rangers that just came to uh, Alpha Company. Uh, so that was a very good experience um, for someone who's not assigned to a, um, a platoon yet, uh, in order to get some experience training uh, some of the younger. Um, uh, or some of the newest rangers in in battalion?
2: Yeah, so currently over at uh, 3rd Battalion. So right now I'm over at uh, the Ranger Special Troops Battalion, but I just moved over from 375. Um, So before you can hit any of the uh, line platoons or line companies, so A, B, C, Co, uh, 375, you got to get your ranger tab. So you come into the aid station. That's essentially where you're going to work. And you, it's you versus all the other mechs to prove your competency and uh, basically be the most fit guy to earn your ranger school slot. So once you earn a ranger school slot, you go, you pass, you come back. Um, we're going to have a brief recovery period to kind of like let you, let you get Eat back. Eat cheeseburgers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kind of, you know, <laughs> get, get your, your body back. right and yeah. get your brain turning the right way again. <laughs> and then, then you go to your platoon and, all those same things, how physically fit you were, how competent you were in not like standards, discipline, talking about medicine, uh, how you handled yourself in the clinic, um, all that is going to be impressions that are relayed from one group of NCOs to another, and as that guy transitions to a company, um, whether or not he goes straight to a platoon or he hangs out in kind of a floater position, that, that'll all depend on manning. Um, so... Once they show up, they're they're in it and they're with the platoon, and you're gonna go straight into helping with coverages, whether or not um, that's shoot house work, uh, whether or not they're doing platoon or company live fires. You're doing jump coverages. You're you're drinking through the fire hose, and you're learning how that platoon is operating. You're integrating with the platoon sergeant, all the squad leaders. Um, you're in a very, very unique position to where you're generally uh, on the, the rank scale, more towards kind of the lower end, but you're expected to be able to engage with almost the full spectrum from the day one private all the way up to the platoon sergeant who's been there years and years and years. So, so they're in a very unique position. Uh, so some of the stuff um, that can dictate success is like we've talked about throughout this whole thing, the ability to, like, be personable with people and, and interact. Uh, guys are generally, I would say, you need to be pretty pretty buttoned up. You need to be, like, making sure you're going to parade rest for every NCO you talk to, until you can build enough rapport with somebody to where you can be a bit more relaxed. Um, they are going to treat you like a private until you prove yourself worthy of a little a little relaxed lifestyle. So that, you know, you can give, give somebody enough, ro- enough rope to essentially get themselves in trouble. But um, day one private life for me was not very fun. A lot of people yelling at me and telling me to do things. Um, but as soon as I showed that I was competent and able to handle tasks, you know, they, they gave me a bit more slack. I could, you know, maybe do PT by myself or, you know. Something like that.
0: You're highlighting things that I think the average person probably doesn't know um, inside the compound. You know, what you guys do on a daily basis It's a very different standard that you have to uphold here you know, than your conventional forces. And so you're also adding that, it sounds like that aspect to the medical side as well. You're going to, you know, again, your mission set is very different. You're going to take it very seriously. You're going to, you know, not only have to, you know, fit and comply with what's expected of a ranger on a daily basis, which is very different um, than your conventional forces, and you have to earn that beret every day. And in the case of the medic, you apply that on top of that requirement. You know, and I'm sure it's the same with other MOSs, but with you guys having to be probably more technically proficient, you're really honing in on that, you know.
1: Yeah, and one of the things that Sergeant Ryan kind of hit on is from day one as a medic, um, a lot is expected of you. So, just, you know, an example, um, you know, I showed up to 1st Ranger Battalion in September, uh, and I was in Afghanistan in December. Uh, on my first deployment, and as the platoon medic, even if you're going out on target with your company senior medic, you're expected to brief the medical plan for that operation. You know, so we'd be conducting you know a briefing for an operation, and you're there as a platoon medic who's been there three months, and everybody else briefing is like a captain, or they're a pilot, or they're you know a squad leader, a platoon sergeant, and you're the, you're new, but you're expected to be able to brief and speak coherently. Um, so that's definitely something that. Can get a little overlooked, but it's something that's gonna be expected of you pretty quickly.
2: Yeah. Another thing I wanted to say too about, you know, once you hit that platoon, the way I think about it is everything I did in my day to day life was for my platoon. You know. Um you wake up in the morning, you're checking what the weather's like, or you know, you get outside, you step outside, you're like, Man, it's a pretty muggy day. You know, maybe check in with the squads, be like, Hey, what are you guys doing for PT today? Like Did everybody hydrate? Are they all okay? Like, do you need any drip drop or this or that if they're going to go do a long run? Um, If guys are injured, you're following up with injuries. Um, I'm checking in with a platoon sergeant pretty consistently, uh, both when I show up to work and when I go home from work. Checking with every squad all the time, like, hey, what are you guys doing? Do you need any help for this? you guys want to do RFR training? Are you guys going to do some 11 Bravo training? Can I join? like you so fully commit to your integration of that platoon your life essentially becomes about their their operation
0: i love that I, it's very interesting you're talking about the proactive side of this because you're you're trying to tell people that you don't want to be a reactive soldier you want to be proactive and you want to demonstrate that in so many different ways of what you guys are describing yeah.
2: and and this is a uh, this is not just a, a 9 to 5 thing you know you're going to be going back to your barracks at night and somebody's going to get hurt at some point and they're going to call you and like, you're going to have to, you know, communicate with them and, and take care of them. Um, it's, you know, I almost think of it almost like having a group of kids. You know, you've got all these guys, and you're constantly checking in on them and making sure they're okay and staying on top of their needs. And, uh, you know, it's a very, very um, unique relationship with a group of people. So,
0: mm-hmm. How many of you guys are married? I know you are. All of you. Okay. What is it like trying to balance
2: all of that then? Uh, I think that depends essentially with how your relationship with your spouse has progressed. Um, So I met, at the time she was girlfriend, now wife, she was, uh, she met me right before I went on my first deployment. So all our relationship has ever known is this. So this is like on par for her. Um, At times it can be stressful and I think uh, she just needs to understand and she does understand that she needs to be pretty independent. Um, I'm not always going to be there, so she she understands she needs to handle problems by herself mm-hmm. a lot of the times. Um, but also Ranger Regiment, in some ways, does a good job putting on events that try to support families. Um, you know, couples retreats, doing stuff like Easter. They're going to do an Easter egg hunt for, you know, you sign up, kids get to come, they get to do their thing. Um, Ranger Regiment understands it's a hard lifestyle, and they try to do what they can to support families um, but that's, from my perspective, with my wife being with me, only knowing me in the regiment. I can't speak for anybody who had a, a family
5: before. I think, like, certain right this this yeah, the same with my wife. She that's When she we got married, she only knew me as, you know, being a ranger. We we met before the Army, but when we got married, she only knew this is how my lifestyle was, constantly gone, constantly training. Uh, but after I left 3rd Battalion and came up to regiment as a training NCO, it kind of changed a little bit because I wasn't... Training. I wasn't out late training as much. I wasn't constantly deployed, uh, so it was kind of weird. We actually bumped heads a little bit more because we weren't used to being <laughs> around each other for so long. So it took a little adjustment. Was she calling to... up the sergeant major and like, gotta get him out of here? <laughs> yeah. and... Probably. Yeah. There's times like, when are you leaving again? There was a few times that she said that. Yeah. But I mean, it was a little adjustment period. But I mean, it ended up working out in the end. So.
0: Yeah. Now, I, yeah I mean y'all you know, each have to chime in you can uh, honestly, but it's it's like I'm trying to at least um, establish and let people know that you can have a family and you can live a daily life, you know
4: Oh, yeah my um <coughs> excuse me, my experience is a little bit different. <coughs> my wife and I were uh, together for about six years before I joined the army um so we we'd already kind of established routines, um you know, just living with each other uh and and, and knowing that relationship and um I, I, it, it took a little bit at first um through basic training and AIT of being away those first six months. Uh my wife's pretty independent uh, very strong-willed personality, um, so it, it, it's been – it hasn't been bad, though. Um, we, uh, we communicate pretty well, uh, so I think that's one of the, the biggest keys is um, if you are in, you know, a relationship before you join, um, how well you communicate uh, and, like, the strength of your relationship before um, you join the Army is going to be a big determining factor of, um, you know, how, it, how it's going to be,
0: you know, um, after you enlist yeah I think it's all fair points because I think with anything within the military you know the, the that relationship is so critical the communication the understanding and those types of things respect mutual respect um, and and I can remember guys that would say you know even in the conventional forces hey if I if I do X then my wife says she's gonna leave you know type of thing and it's it's again it's about understanding and having um, a strong relationship no matter what your lifestyle is but I think it's a the reason why I wanted to bring it up was because I think a lot of people may make assumptions or at least some people make uh, assumptions that if you're in the soft community and maybe even especially within regiment that you know it's probably best not to be married and it's more single guys and that type of thing and I think you guys are living testament that that's not necessarily true no that's not
5: true and I don't don't know exactly how it is in the conventional army but I've had friends out there they said uh Certain units, their family readiness groups, some of them really great and some are really poor. And I know regiment has a really great family readiness group support system for the spouses and family members. So tell me about – okay, go ahead. Sorry, oh, sorry, ahead. I
1: was going to just add to that the uh, the chaplains for each battalion and for the regiment as a whole. Um, their their focus is not just on religious support, but one of their big focuses is on families. They're the ones who actually plan and schedule events for both married rangers and single rangers because they do acknowledge that um, – that being a single ranger can be difficult as well um, with this lifestyle. So the the chaplains and the, the FRG groups, um, they all do a lot uh, to help work with families to create time uh, and events to, to do things together. And then additionally, one of the cool things about the Ranger Regiment is uh, while we do work really hard and we are gone a lot, um, generally when you're home, you you get a lot of time off. Uh, if There's nothing going on at work that day. You might be home by noon. Um, There's a lot of four-day weekends and three-day weekends, Um, so it's not just a, you're not just gone all the time. We're not robots, you know. We all have personal lives. We don't, we don't want to be at work 24/7. So you don't, you don't have to be in that kind of mindset to to come into this organization. That's a
2: great point. And one last thing, I was told by uh, somebody once that you know this, you know, a relationship is a two-way street, and if you have a schedule that keeps you away from your family late at night. You know, I don't think it's too much to take ten minutes in between when you're doing something to call home, you know, right before your kids go to bed and, you know, say like good night to them. Mm-hmm. You can if you make family a priority, you will find a way to continue to make family a priority. There are little things you can do to show that you're trying and that you care. And that essentially comes down to the individual. Yeah. If a person wants to stay away and not communicate with a spouse or something, yeah, there are times that they could easily do that. But then, you know, even if you're deployed, there are times you could hop on your computer, get on Skype, and just Skype in for 10 minutes and say hello and see your family. Um, that that comes down to the person, though. Yeah. So, like uh, Specialist Bauer said, if you communicate well with your family, you'll generally be successful. So.
0: I, well said. I, I think it's well said. I think what you guys are also saying is that you recognize, you know, fellow soldiers who, fellow Rangers that have spouses, who have families, and you're not treating them like robots, which may be another assumption. You know, there are, again, there are standards and stuff that you got to uphold, but yet you're human and, and you understand that they're human. And, and that's an aspect I think that some people may misunderstand.
3: Yeah, I think I think you bring up a good point too. Is like you you do communicate with your wife and that's or your spouse and that's really important. But you also need to communicate with your command as well. Um, I've I've had only like one maybe one experience with the leader where um, they made it difficult for me to to go home and spend time with my wife or have things that I need to take care of that, that couldn't be accomplished. But for the most part, when you can, uh, communicate with your leadership, like hey, I have these needs, they're gonna be they're gonna be pretty receptive to those needs and help you out as far as as family life goes. They understand that that's gonna be the The most important thing in your life.
0: You guys in your MOS and in your profession are exposed to a lot of trauma. And I think um, not only that, but you're probably seeing even more so because of the longevity of the war, you know, things along the line of not just physical trauma, but mental trauma and post-traumatic stress and everything within the ranks, as well as those that come off active duty. Um, You know, how is it that you guys have seen even some of that um, not just progress but ways and programs in which you're you're trying to identify that readily and, and maybe even help those individuals through their their journey?
1: Um, I mean so uh, the military as a whole and the Ranger Regiment has done a, a really good job lately of trying to one destigmatize PTSD uh, but to provide the resources to to treat PTSD um, and as a medic I've been kind of the you know I've been the the middleman between a lot of guys with PTSD uh, and getting them to the care that they needed. Um, The support is definitely there for people. I think the, the biggest challenge uh, is kind of destigmatizing it in a, in a culture and so the ranger regiment has a culture um, and it has its strengths and it has its weaknesses um, but we definitely are doing a good job with actively trying to make sure that people um, are comfortable with seeking care and then when they do want to seek care uh, for ptsd mental health issues anything at all um, that the
5: care is there for them
0: it's really about breaking that stigma I mean, and we've come a long way in a short amount of time, but we've still got a long ways to go, but definitely.
5: Yeah, and all the command leadership have full support of guys that are willing to to go seek the help they need, and they see that as being a more mature ranger that's, you know, he's willing to help himself, like this this guy's squared away. You know, he's, like, not trying to hide it and brush it under the rug.
2: Yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, I think I was listening to maybe, like, a, a TED Talk one time. Somebody got up and talked about how, we put this big emphasis on getting yearly like medical checkups for your health, and somebody's like, "Well, why don't we do that for our mental health? Why don't we just get a good check on where we are? Everybody experiences stress, and there's nothing wrong with wanting to reduce how you feel about stress or process that stress. There's nothing wrong with that, um, and I think we've done a good job of, you know, we got a good a good team um, that takes care of psych issues for us and. You know, sometimes the hardest part is a guy just just committing to going there. But I think, you know, once people have gone over, they've had great experiences. And I think, you know, some people say, like, oh, I don't want to go see psych because I don't want people to, to see me as a burden or not want to confide in me for this or that. But I've generally seen it's almost the exact opposite. When guys commit to going to psych... If somebody's thinking about it and they know you've gone, they might go to you and be like, Well, how was your experience? What was it like? You know, how can I be successful? And it's they become an additional outlet to help other people succeed. And I think the more people go and the more their needs get taken care of, it's gonna, you know, almost be like going to sit call and, and getting some you know, your at your twisted ankle taken care of. You're like, Hey, you know, I experienced some stress. I kinda wanna go process it, so I'm gonna go see this person. Um but yeah, it's, I don't think there's as much of a stigma as, as people assume there is. Uh.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'll just go ahead and use myself as a personal example. Um, a few years ago, I was pretty burnt out uh, with doing the whole ranger medicine thing, and I was at training cycle after training cycle. And actually, I was in the middle of a, a ranger medic assessment and validation. And I was like, I was so burnt out that I couldn't think straight, I wasn't sleeping. Uh, and I went to my supervisor, who was the battalion senior medic, and I was like, hey, like, I need. I need to go see the psych, I need a break, and he was like, hey man, no problem, like take as much time as you need, and I I went and I saw the psych, and I just took a bunch of days off, and it helped kind of push the reset button, so just so people are aware, like, it's okay to do that, Um, there are a lot of people, I'm not the only one who are doing that, Um, and it's, sometimes it's good to kind of like hit that reset button, talk to a professional, because, you know, we're not, as as men in this unit, we're not necessarily the best about talking about what's going on inside of our heads, so. The tools are there and and the leadership is generally pretty supportive
0: ARMED, when we talk when you guys talk about ARMED and you, you know you guys being medics and everything but give people a perspective of what that consists of what are the skills that are within that and the complexity or how big it is
5: uh is still kind of a small section i don't think it's really grown throughout the years i mean yeah. it kind of always been there i mean it just consists of the regimental pa the regimental doc myself the senior listed medical advisor we have a training nco an ops NCO, uh, a vet, and a medlog NCO. So we're a small group, but we support all the line battalions, especially when it comes to resourcing, training, and manning all the battalions with medics,
2: the medical training. I think a, a good thing to bring up too, Master Gonzalez, is also you know like the human performance and like the cognitive performance stuff we have. I think that those additions uh, we're trying to integrate earlier, but uh, I don't know if guys are really tracking that stuff.
5: No, you're right. I think they need, we probably need to do a better job of advertising what's available for them on the human performance side. So tell me, what when you say human performance, what do you? when you guys look at that, what is that? Uh, so it's the strength coaches, the physical therapists. So they can put you guys on a PT program if you're training for ranger school or if you want to meet a certain goal with your physical ability. So they can tailor specific programs to your Body type or how you are. Do you guys work closely, like, with a master fitness trainer, or how's it? Uh, the strength coaches—they—they they have.
2: Well, how many do we have? Like three strength uh, coaches. Yeah, I want to say. So each three seven five has two coaches. I think up on the regimental side, there's three coaches. Um, so we have a couple physical therapists. We have one cognitive performance coach who will help you with, you know. How do I build better habits? How do I improve my sleep? Like, what are what are these like daily things you can do to make yourself more successful over time? Uh, we have a nutritionist or a dietitian. dietitian. Sorry, I always mess that up. Um, so we have all these all these things that are. Generally, uh, I want to say underutilized resources, and that's actually what... Maybe I'm- even
0: have uh, even unheard of, because these are yeah. active duty personnel that we're no, talking about. No, no
2: these no. are not. So these are not. These are
5: actually contractors, Yes, contractors. Okay. That uh, Actually, some of these strength coaches came from big colleges where they worked on different sports teams with those athletes. So, yeah, they're not active duty personnel. They actually had the background, the professional knowledge to, to train our guys
2: and get them where we need to be. So this is actually one thing, too, that we're just starting to utilize in the pre-Socum program. This wasn't a thing when I was in pre-Socum, but uh, we're going to set up blocks of instruction where guys can go down and get... Um, like, hey, how do I perform all these lifts appropriately? We're going to get them all plans so that they can get their fitness on track and maintain fitness or meet fitness goals. We're going to have them meet with cognitive performance so they can learn how to build more effective habits. Hey, how do I improve my sleep? What are those things I can do day to day? Or what are these resources I can tap into, if that's something you're interested into, to really like hone who I am? Um, so those, that's something we're doing on the pre-socum side now to try to give guys... Longevity. Uh, a lot of times you'll see dudes who have been in ranger regiment for a long time, not only can they get mentally worn down, but physically worn down. They're so used to rangering. Mm-hmm. Um, if we can give them the knowledge to be successful earlier on in their career, we're going to reap more benefit from the investment that is our ranger. So that's, those are some things we're trying to do as well.
1: Yeah, and the, uh, the the Ranger Regiment set up the Phalanx program uh, not too long ago, which that's essentially the, the whole goal of the Phalanx p- program, is to uh, mentor uh, Rangers and give Rangers uh, you know physical support and mental support uh, and track their health throughout their career, uh, but then also prepare them for the civilian world. So uh, helping them with education opportunities. We have an education counselor now uh, at the regiment level. And I think at each one of the battalions who will help sign guys up for college classes, uh, help, help them get scheduled to take the SATs, various things like that. So the, the regiment is doing a lot right now to invest uh, internally uh, to kind of prepare rangers not only just for the rest of their career but uh, for the civilian life that inevitably will come for all of us.
0: Do you guys get a chance to rotate back into the private sector and do what you did during SOCOM on occasion?
5: So every three years the medic will go to Grady Memorial out on Atlanta and oh, do yeah. a trauma center rotation. So if anybody
0: doesn't know, that's like the trauma center in this area. Yeah. yeah.
5: So they'll go there for every three years. They'll go there for two to four weeks. And we have a great relationship with the trauma surgeons out there. We'll, we'll, the medic will link up with the trauma team and follow them around for those two weeks to, to four weeks, however long they're there. You guys get a
0: chance to do that in the other battalions as well? With yeah, the all, all the line
5: battalions go to Grady Grady Memorials. Oh, they and all come? They all come there. So it's a re, actually, it's a requirement that they have to do it every three years um i know out in savannah 175 is working a relationship with memorial out there and in 275 was trying to work a relationship i think it's harborview mm. out in seattle but for the most part they all come to grady here in atlanta wow that's good training
2: and and not only do do we go to them but when we hold ranger medic assistance and validation they'll they'll come down and they'll help um what a great relationship us. so yeah um you know it's, it's great that they take the time to do that because they're super busy, and it really shows us and our junior medics a lot that, hey, these people are taking their personal time to come and continue to develop you. So um, that's something you're not really going to get a lot of other places.
5: Plus, they see where our medic skill level is at. So when they do come up there to the hospital to do a rotation, they feel, have full confidence on the abilities of what the medics can do. Yeah, so
0: critical, again, to that relationship that you're talking about where you're parachuting the guy into a hospital during the SOCOM, and then they're having to build that rapport and relationship, and a lot of it's based on the last guy. Again, um, that, that kind of relationship I could definitely see could pay big dividends. And, and it kind of leads me into you know, in the medical community, we've seen so many changes that's happened because of combat, but also because of what's happening in the private sector and the changes that are happening out there in the medical community that are also brought back into the, uh, to help you guys in, in combat and stuff. So it's a lot of sharing that goes back and forth in techniques, tools, you know, and stuff that are being utilized. And I, I even know some guys that are former uh, Ranger Medics that have created tools and uh, in, in things and stuff that get used back into the force. You know, really cool.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of medical innovation going on, um, going both ways, whether it's from civilian medicine to military medicine or the other way around. Uh, One example would be uh, Tranexemic Acid or TXA, which is a medication that we push uh, on battlefield casualties who have internal bleeding. Um, That medication actually originated in dental surgery. Uh, And then it kind of worked its way uh, through various different uh, fields of medicine. Uh, Europe was using it pretty heavily for a while, and then the military adopted it around the 2011-12 time frame, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, And it's been used significantly uh, with really great effects on casualties since then. Uh, and then, going the other way, we have the, the whole blood program that the Ranger Regiment just uh, pioneered a, a few years ago. I was going to say, I was going to bring that up, yeah. yeah. So that's actually worked its way into some civilian uh, medical systems, and particularly okay. like EMS systems, uh, where some paramedic departments are now carrying whole blood uh, in the ambulances. Um, and all the data coming from the battlefield is showing that it, administering whole blood uh, as as close to the point of injury as possible is paying huge dividends when it comes to survivability rates.
0: That that kind of stuff and like again advances everybody and makes everybody better. And and are you guys doing even some of the when you, you're doing the the combat training and stuff with the troops? Are you sharing some of those techniques as well as part of it? Um, are you getting that opportunity to? Sharing with the the non medics. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. So uh, part of the the uh, advanced ranger first responder program is training our our non medics on how to conduct field whole blood transfusions. Huge. Um, that's that's huge. Yeah. yeah and it, so it's it's really a great tool for decompressing medics when we're working on multiple casualties. We can direct you know a non medic uh, to go ahead and start drawing units of blood. Um, off of another ranger that we can then transfuse into the casualty. Um, and this happened not too long ago at 175 um, with, a, with a triple amputee casualty. Uh, and the ROLO or Ranger OLO titer program is, is one of the factor, contributing factors um, to why that, that casualty survived and is alive today.
0: What would be the advice that you'd give somebody who's looking at coming into the Army and specifically coming into regiment? And especially those within your community, I'm talking about the medical, um, medic.
1: Um, I, I would say if you're going to, if you want to be a ranger medic, make sure that you are interested in medicine, uh, make sure that that's something that you're interested in, um. And then just understand that it's a long road. Um, it, you know, from the time you go to basic training to the time you graduate Socom is roughly two years. And then at that point, you're still kind of on probationary status. And then you have to go to Ranger School. And then once you do, once you pass Ranger School, then you're kind of, you know, complete with your pipeline, so to speak. So it's it's a long road, but it, just take it one step at a time. Uh, don't focus on the end state because if you do, it can feel a little bit overwhelming. Uh, but yeah, just take it one step at a time. Talking right.
2: I think uh, for a guy who came in very unsure of what he wanted to do, and then to end up uh, where I'm at currently, uh, anybody who's thinking about working in ranger medicine, like Sergeant Ginn said, should really focus on. You know, medicine is the thing I absolutely want to do, but understand you're going to get so much more than that. You're you're going to get developed by some of the best NCOs around. You're going to get exposure to all other walks of ranger life. And for a person who might not be so sure about what they want, it's going to give you little touch points on so many other things. Uh, it'll give you exposure to most likely find a thing you really care about. Mm. So that's kind of what I'd put to it. Uh,
3: I think the biggest thing is just is uh, kind of what Sergeant Ginn was saying about taking it one step at a time. Uh, I saw a lot of people going through the pipeline that would just either give up or eventually just fade out because they would think, "Man, like this this thing in two weeks is going to be super hard," and they haven't even tried it. So, uh, don't get overwhelmed by what you're you're doing in that specific point. Just keep keep your head down, keep going, and uh, it's very rewarding once you finish.
4: I would definitely agree um, with all those opinions. I would um, also state that uh, I think. Knowing the expectation, um, knowing the standards that you need to be um, to be at, uh, is important before you start. Because I've, I've met a lot of people who wanted to be uh, wanted to be a ranger medic, uh, wanted the end goal, but didn't necessarily have the tools um, or didn't have the discipline uh, in order to reach that. So knowing the standard, um, you know, j- it's just like. Taking, uh, taking a course, you look at the syllabus, and you know what's expected of you and know what uh, challenges you're going to have to uh, meet in order to succeed uh, that course. The same thing uh, goes for you know, tackling a pipeline that's uh, two years approximately in length, is knowing what physical standards, uh, knowing the, um, the challenges that will be um, you know, posed to you, and being able to far exceed those would be my, uh, my recommendation.
5: Yeah, I'll add to that, talking to some of the AIT students, too. They all throw an impression that you have to be this person that's in stellar shape in order to make it through RAS. But um, like Sergeant Bowers was saying, uh, you just meet the the Ranger standards. If you can meet those standards, you'll be good to go and you're going to get better once you're in the organization on your physical ability. And the big thing is you've got to be a self-motivator. I mean, you definitely have to be a self-motivator and able to be successful in this organization.
0: You know it's one thing again you know to come in and and get into the regimen but i think you guys have set a standard as well as in an impression obviously from what we even hear and in just the either conventional or within the um the individuals are looking to come in the service of of that medics have set themselves apart or, or made a name, you know, within regiment. Um, and I, I'm sure a lot of it happened just with what you've been able to do and applying your skills on the battlefield to be able to demonstrate that. But you've le- lived that ethos on a daily basis, even in, you know, when you're back here in, in garrison. And um, so highly commendable, you guys. Have done a great job of doing that, certain role.
3: Yeah, I just have, have one more thing to say about the pipeline. Um, if you're if you're planning on going through it, just don't go by it. like yourself. There's there's many many resources that you can have as like a support group, whether that be like senior leaders or your family. Um, just don't try and and power through it necessarily by yourself. I'm I'm sure people have done it, but I'm sure it's a lot easier if you have some kind of support group to to help you through different things as you hit harder times or more difficult parts of your, your pipeline. I, I know I definitely wouldn't have been able to make it without my wife. So, uh, just don't, don't focus and try and like put your head down and do it by yourself. There's like a lot of people and a lot of resources that would, would love and be happy to help you out. And don't deselect. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And uh, sorry to keep adding one more thing on there. If, no, if you're in high school, uh, play a sport, Uh, Do something physical where, all jokes aside, like seriously, do something where you wake up every morning and you have a little bit of anxiety about the day um, because that's kind of, and about whether or not you're going to be able to meet the physical or or mental requirements because I think uh, a lot of guys do end up deselecting themselves in pre-RASP before RASP even starts, like a lot of people, Uh, and it's because they get there and and the cadre are, are working on getting them into shape and they've just never, they've never trained this hard in their life. So my recommendation would be kind of like desensitize your that, yourself to that and build that um, mental and physical resiliency before you join the army, because um, it's just going to make that transition a, a little bit easier when you get there. You know, it doesn't matter what kind of sport; just play anything that's you know that's physically demanding um, and, and something where you ha- you have to train and, and keep yourself in shape.
0: I th- which is, I think, something that's so odd. If you're going to go down and you know scream say you want the option forty contract and you don't understand what that means going in the door. Yeah, it's it's a great point. You need to make sure that you're willing to apply yourself and do something above and beyond what the other um, classmates and stuff may not be doing at this moment in time. You know.
2: Yeah, and uh, to jump on the one more thing train, uh, <laughs> 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 caveat. Uh, we've we've talked a lot about kind of the stress and how how strenuous and you know mentally demanding the program can be. Uh, one thing people should not forget is all the fun and the stuff that you can have. Uh, for me like when I was a young single dude and I was hitting a four day weekend me and my buddies we were from all over the place so we would travel and you know we'd go to the beach here the mountains there do this or that and those were great things to help like decompress mental stress and have a good time and uh, you shouldn't get necessarily like bogged down in the the difficult details of everything but remember you can still have a life it's still gonna be fun um there are great experiences to be had. You just you got to look, look for the good in the things, or the army says, you know, hunt the good stuff, and, uh, and you're going to have a good time regardless. So that's, that's what people need to, to focus on is all the benefit that they're going to have, and, and don't get bogged down in all the negative. So.
5: And also, uh, you don't have to be a young guy right out of high school to get to RAS. Yeah. I, I came through when I was 25, So we have plenty of Rangers that went through RAS, probably mid-20s to early-30s, that have made it successfully through. So don't think it's a young man's game. Yeah, it's a good thing you
0: said that because I actually um, had a few people that were over the age of 30 that felt like, or even over the age of 25 that felt like, you know, um, maybe they were too old and they shouldn't achieve it. And, of course, I said, well, you've already deselected, so, you know, go to it. Um, it's all in, inside your head of whether or not you can do it. Obviously, you've got to have physical strengths, but they're going to work with you to do that. You know, I know pre-RASP, um, that's a lot of the stuff that they do is they're trying to help you be successful. Correct. Yeah. But uh, appreciate it, Sergeant Gim, Sergeant Ryan. Thank you very Sergeant much. Sergeant Earl, Specialist Bowers, soon-to-be Sergeant Bowers soon? Hopefully, uh, April 1st. There you go. And Sergeant Gonzalez, thank you so much for each of you coming on the podcast and sharing a little bit of information, not only about the regiment and medical side of it, but uh, your personal journeys and personal stories as well. I think it'll uh, really help some folks out there. Awesome. Thanks right, very much
5: thank for your you. time. We had a good time.